Hello and welcome to this week's recording of the Five Things Podcast. I am your host, Kenny Gold, joined as always by my trusty co-pilots, Project Director Amanda Davis. Hello, Amanda. Morning, Kenny. And Executive Director of Data Strategy, Beth Rolfs. Hey, Kenny. Beth's back on the East Coast, people, so this isn't a nightmarish approach to recording a podcast. Uh, So, where are we? As the summer winds down, uh, our first story is really starting to heat up, and it's all part of our continuing conversation about TikTok. The rest of our quote-unquote things are all good news topics to take you right into Labor Day. So, we will be kicking off with TikTok uh, challenging Donald Trump's executive order. We will talk about Reddit reporting hate speech drop, Facebook launching their educator hub, Pinterest highlighting Black-owned businesses, and then BTS breaking YouTube's 24-hour view record, which is the second time, I think, in the past 30 days that that number has been broken. So we kick it off with TikTok challenging Donald Trump's executive order. And for those who haven't been paying attention, TikTok, everyone's favorite quick hit content channel, is planning to sue the US government, um, arguing that the president's move to block the app really deprived them of their due process and claiming that it has been unfairly and incorrectly treated as a security threat. They are also in the process of trying to have their U.S. operations purchased by a U.S.-based company to prevent any lapse in service. At the time of this recording, we are hearing something along the lines of Microsoft and Walmart partnering together to do this. Uh, This is a very interesting and smart flex on the part of TikTok. Uh, You know, try and tie it up in court as long as possible until the election, perhaps. We're not that far out. But ultimately, uh, a nice little pushback from TikTok and and something we're watching closely every single day. Beth, Amanda, what do we think about this? I'm excited to see where it goes. I think beyond just the policy, you know, concerns that have come up with the, you know, the current administration trying to control a little bit of that, uh, what they consider security threat. I also think it's about time that TikTok starts owning the narrative about who, who they are as a business, what they do, what they don't do. So policy aside, I think, you know, this is going to keep this is going to keep pushing the relationship between government and social platforms into a place where they have to start figuring out how to work with each other, how to live with each other, how to create policies and rules around it. So I, I'm, I'm glad that TikTok's sticking up for themselves, I guess, is a simple way to put it. What do you think, Beth? Yeah, I mean, I think I think they have every right to question the due process, and I'm happy that they're doing so as well. What I think is really interesting is the Walmart piece of this. Um, and word on the street is Walmart has been trying to kind of push into the technology content space. And I think this could be a huge opportunity for them. So when I heard that, I was like, get it, Walmart. This is also kind of weird, but let's see how it goes. Well, if you look at Walmart and you try to understand who their number one competitor is, they're looking at Amazon. And Amazon is fully entrenched in the content space. Uh, And Amazon is fully entrenched in the gaming space uh, with their ownership of Twitch. So 
you are starting to see where Amazon is becoming this content behemoth. And you know that Walmart, understanding that brick and mortar uh, is going to be in a very interesting space in a post-COVID world, where are they going to be able to start to come in and make an impact on what's happening uh, in the content space? So in a partnership with Microsoft, in a partnership where they are buying the US operations of TikTok, what does that give them insight into? Also, if you think about Gen Z using this channel more than any other channel on the internet, and you think about the future of retail, what does the usage of TikTok tell Walmart to give them a competitive advantage as they start to create a, uh, a loyal shopping base within Gen Z for the future? So it is fascinating. And I think that 99% of the people who are going to read this article in the New York Times are going to be seeing it in this very micro arena of what, you know, maybe Microsoft and Walmart need to work together in order to generate the cash. I've heard a rumor that the number is 30 billion is the number that TikTok is looking for. Um, but then on the flip side of things, I think there is a macro picture that needs to be evaluated for the future of retail uh, and shopping behaviors for Gen Z. Totally agree. And I think a good point you brought up about the data that Walmart could get about this emerging audience that has so much purchasing power could be massive for them. It's also kind of funny because it's like, don't give the Chinese our data, but Walmart and Microsoft, you guys can have it. We've been giving Microsoft our data for the better part of three decades. Why would we stop now? It's just, it's just the way it is. So with that, let's move on to our second thing. Beth, tell us a little bit about Reddit reporting hate speech drop. Yeah, so this is a great story. Um, we talked a little bit ago on this plat or on this podcast about um, how Reddit was really taking a hard stance on hate speech and banning hate speech, and they made no qualms about the fact that they were going to come out and do this in a very real way. Um, and we're a few months into this. This happened in June, and. Uh, Reddit reported that they saw an 18% drop in users posting hateful content. Well, I think that's awesome. Um, and it's really interesting because they said not only has there been a drop in the amount of content people are exposed to that's hateful, part a lot of it because of their policing, but also people have just stopped posting hateful content. I think there's that's a great win for the world. Um, the fact that when people are told they can't do it and they know their content will be taken down, there's just a um, reduced, I guess, need to put it out there um, for these people. So, you know, work into a reduce of 100% of hate speech. I think 18% is a good starting point. Um, and I, I think it's really great that they have actually followed through in a way that is impacting change on the platform. Um, there's there's some talk about, though, what I think is interesting is that hate speech isn't always overt. Um, a lot of times it can be, you know, certain trigger words or a very subtle um, kind of nuanced way of spreading hate. So 
of course, you can't build technical models to stop that kind of conversation. But what's, I think, really heartening about this is while models may not be able to pick it up, maybe people will start to just change their behaviors because of this bigger policing. What do you think, Amanda? Yeah, Amanda, that this is right up your alley. What do you yeah, think? Yeah, 100%. I'm really glad to hear this. One, that it's being reported because I think, I mean, the three of us can attest how often we talk about these platform features and updates and, you know, what our platform's doing to control the conversation and, and narrative on their platform. Um, and it's generally, as we know, been quite hands-off or excused as being, you know, it's too difficult. We can't operationalize that way. It doesn't work, et cetera. So I'm excited not only that Reddit can say, we did it, it worked. These are, you know, pillars that you can put into Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, et cetera, but also that they're creating this um, habit of, of transparency and of saying, um, you know, this worked or it didn't work. I'd imagine even if it didn't work, they would be probably the first company to say, we tried X, Y, and Z, didn't work. Um, and I think that's the other part of the conversation that we're missing a lot of. There's a lot of, of uh, ideas around how we can, you know, help help dissolve hate speech. But I think the accountability and the follow-up is the other important part that has never been part of these conversations before. So not only does it say to Facebook, like, you guys can do it if we can do it. Um, it also challenges the other platforms to to stand by what they're saying and committing to and 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 honestly share a little bit of you know the secret sauce like where did, how did Reddit focus this how can Facebook emulate that seeing where they had successes and instead of trying to reinvent the wheel on each platform and hoping that they can all crack it it, it shouldn't be um, a secret strategy or a secret tactic like this is just humanity and society it should be a shared understanding of what we can do to make everybody feel represented and accepted. They're also learning a lot about the types of hate speech through this very active initiative, which I think is fascinating of if you want to stop hate speech, get to the root of the problem where that hate is coming from and understanding the conversation might help us as a society set up, you know, training and education and programs for younger generations to try to kill some of that feeling of hate. And it's nice too, you can actually see, like, this is a good example of actually seeing the evolution of people understanding, you know, what does anti-racism look like? What does a lot of like acceptance look like? What does hate speech look like to your point, Beth? And I think everyone's already doing this or not everyone, honestly, a lot of people are already doing this on their own accord of understanding how that we'll use racism as an example. You know, racism is embedded in a lot of our systemic um, thinking, conscious bias, things like that. So while everyone collectively as a society is, is pushing that understanding forward. The platforms need to be moving at that same speed and same understanding to, to get ahead of the curve instead of waiting, as we saw with Facebook, for instance, <laughs> waiting to receive direction on how they can, um, you know, create a, a better environment. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. And, and I think we're seeing uh, the, the continuation of you know, how these channels are balancing empathy and free speech in a way that's going to be meaningful uh, for their user base. Moving forward, Amanda, tell us a little bit about Facebook launching the Educator Hub. So Facebook has come up with what they're calling their Educators Hub. So it's aiming to provide a lot of not only teachers, but students with um, tools and resources in one platform that can make them uh, maximize how they're using their at-home new schooling time that is, I don't think anyone has quite cracked yet. 
So while it has, you know, your normal teacher tools, teaching plans, assessments, um, you know, academic resources, it actually also has a huge database of anti-racism resources, which is relevant because a lot of teachers are now learning how to have relationships with their students that are are supporting anti-racism and, and equality and representation. Um, so whereas that has generally been an extensive part of peer-to-peer relationships. It hasn't really been part of education or academia. So I think that's interesting. Um, And then alongside that too, there's also a lot of mental health resources to help not only teachers understand how they're supposed to live in this, uh, you know, this setup that we're going to be in for who knows how long, but also for students, it's difficult to move to an online only um, education approach. So I think the the holistic nature of everything that's in this, like right now, it's it's kind of a digital library. It's a hub of a lot of different resources that you can access through Facebook site. I think having all of this information and resource in one place is the reason that Facebook originally exists. It's it's Facebook going back to its yes. roots of how do we connect yes. people? How do we provide stuff to them? How do we centralize conversation? How do we make sure that the people that are trying to meet and talk to each other in Facebook groups are doing it? I mean, you look at you know, tacking on if they create a bigger use for messenger in this space. Could teachers talk to their students that way? Instead of all these sporadic Facebook groups in every community and, and subject, how do we centralize that conversation to make it, um, you know, help people? I am going to one-up you on this. Like, I'm going to plus one like heart, whatever you are saying right now. Facebook's mission is to create a more open and connected world. It is that simple. It started off its roots in on college campuses, connecting people to one another, whether it's Facebook portal, Facebook messenger, the future of virtual reality learning through Oculus, whether it is the way that we are going to use the algorithm to customize education materials, student by student, the fact that they are creating this educator hub and creating resources to help teachers and students connect with each other in a world that is becoming much is becoming more and more remote by the minute is an unbelievable step for them. It is no secret to anyone who has listened to this podcast that we tend to give Facebook uh, a pretty hard time. And that's because um, mostly they deserve it. But in this instance, I think you are talking about a platform that is going back to its roots, dialing into its core. And frankly, if you saw this across more of their releases and more of their behavior, I think that they would have a different perception out in the world. I absolutely love that they are doing this. And it's also, it's something that is needed. Like, I think what we talk about Facebook a lot previously, it's, you know, tacking on to other, you know, trends or behaviors, whereas this feels a little bit more proactive. There's, there are, it's very insight driven. I'm sure people are using Facebook for some of these reasons, but it, it is them taking a step back to your point, Kenny, looking at their brand purpose and saying, how do we apply that moving forward? Not how do we capitalize on something that's already happening on another platform? It's two thumbs up from us, Facebook. <laughs> Yeah. And I'm sure Beth is giving a thumbs up too. Yeah. I will also like, share, comment, thumbs up, hand raising emoji. I'm into it. Well, you know what, Beth, you have the chance now to take us into the next positive thing, uh, which is really, really exciting. And it's the fact that Pinterest is highlighting black owned businesses on their channel. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So Pinterest launched shop in November of last year and um, they have taken the initiative to uh, create a kind of black owned businesses focus um, in it's, uh, it aligns both with national black business month and their broader black lives 
matter initiatives, but um, they've created a shop that highlights a range of black owned businesses um, in fashion and the beauty sector. So I think kind of piling on what we talked about last week with Pinterest expanding their um, their skin tone options in the app. Now they're just going one step deeper and they're saying, here are black owned businesses um, that you can actually support through the app, which is just great. I mean, Pinterest was faced with its own, as many companies have been going through this year, um, its own kind of issues with racial inequality within its company culture and the business. Um, And I think this is a great step to show that they're taking action in the world to be better. They, I mean, they've also are undergoing an independent audit of their process, which I think the independent part is really important and um, says a lot about them. But I think it's it's great. You know, companies deserve the chance to grow and be better. And I think we're seeing that Pinterest is taking that very seriously. So kudos to Pinterest. What do you guys think? I think it's been great to see their, you know, not only accountability with them as as a company and, you know, as a as a business entity, but also as a platform and saying we don't need to just aggregate all of this great content. We actually do have a duty to, you know, celebrate the things that should be celebrated. Similar to what we're saying about Reddit, you know, if there's any kind of hate speech, controlling that a little bit more. So it's almost a continuation of that platform accountability and making sure that, you know, social justice causes, things that people care about, you know, even even when you think about like niche content or options to, you know, get to the content that's relevant to you versus just all the smattering of, of um, you know, posts that you can sometimes see. I just I love that this is an evolution for platforms to start saying like we have responsibility beyond just connect everyone. It's also create the experience that pushes people forward. I, I think it's great. I love that. Any story we can tell of social media lifting brands up, furthering the message of equality and and showing all the the spaces and places we should all start to explore as a part of this broader project called humanity, uh, I'm all about. Uh, So Amanda, take us on home with BTS breaking YouTube's 24-hour view record. All right. A couple of months ago, I was able to have a very similar take on a very similar story where a K-pop group, last last time it was Blackpink in June, um, this time it's BTS, has broken YouTube's 24-hour view rate on their new song called Dynamite with 1.65 million viewers. Um, 24 hours... One and a half, you could round it up to two million viewers on one song. We said this was crazy in June. Um, I mean, for this to happen again within, you know, a month. And, and I think right before that, it was broken earlier this year in 2020 as well. It, by another K-pop song, by the way. Um, it's just, it's staggering. And it's a, it's a amalgamation of obviously people being in quarantine K-pop is having a huge moment ever than than it ever has. But also it's like it's a study in communities and the power of communities. Like it is the song great. Yeah, it's a great song. Um, YouTube's a great platform that's easy to use. It's not about the song or the platform, though. It's really about 
the communities that are so impassioned, like to, uh, to a degree that we can barely even wrap our heads around, um, doing things in such a large organized way, say what we saw with TikTok, what we see with these records breaking, like there's a lot of, of, um, you know, initiatives that that K-pop in this instance are, are pushing forward. So I think we're going to continue to see not only these communities getting connected and, and talking and planning and coming up with new ways to to show up in the world, but also just having a huge voice that can absolutely not be ignored. Absolutely. I think you're seeing the power of community come through. If marketers who are listening take anything away from this, it is how the strength of community is critical, but also the momentum that the currency of conversation gets you. Uh, when people start talking about you and your content and how you're reaching the world, it's rocket fuel. Beth, what do you think? I think K-pop fans are incredible. And I think they are such an untapped opportunity, especially for the U.S. market. Um, a little story, I used to work on Lipton and was doing some social listening. We would see like around... I think it was like 3.30 a.m. There was always this huge spike in conversation around Lipton. And it's actually because in Korea, Lipton has partnered with a bunch of K-pop artists and the videos are insane. It's like they go into like a Lipton store and the whole thing is shot with Lipton in every single scene. But Lipton iced tea is now a huge part of culture and it's what people who are K-pop fans drink. So I think there's something really interesting about looking to different audiences and communities that might not feel perfectly right for your brand, but have this intense power. And K-pop fans, they're one of them. I mean, what they did with buying tickets to the Trump rallies, like there, there is such a community there that we should all take note of and take advantage of in a respectful right way, of course. Well, I, I think the only way to make sure that the Five Things podcast goes to the top of the podcast charts is for us to get a little BTS magic on, uh, on, on it, or maybe some sort of K-pop rocket fuel. With that, you heard a lot of great stories. We'd like to thank the New York Times, The Verge, Digital Information Worldwide, Social Media Today, and Forbes for uh, first party information about all of these stories. Quick note from us, uh, we will not be here next week. We are all taking a little break to go out and enjoy the last bits of the summer that are here in front of us. Ultimately, we will be back. Don't fret. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to email us at podcasts at gray.com. That's podcasts at gray.com. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you, Beth. Thanks, everyone. Stay safe. Stay smart. Stay social. See you soon. The Five Things are written and researched by Andrew Patti and Grace McDougall. Produced by Joey Scarillo, Danielle Hunt, and John Dillon. Additional support by John Jenkinson and Christina Hyde. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com. And we're out. That was good. <laughs>